Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to Dragon Hall in Norwich. I'm delighted to welcome you here this evening. Um, this is the fourth night of our World's 2013 International Literary Salon, but it's, um, it's a kind of a very special evening of celebration. My name is Chris Gribble, I'm the Chief Executive of Writers' Centre Norwich, and it's a real pleasure to welcome you to an event and an evening that marks quite important points on three separate but connected journeys. The first of those is our journeys UNESCO City of Literature. The second is that of this book, this new translation of Meir of Norwich's poetry. And the third of that is the return of Meir's voice itself to Norwich. The book that we're launching is part of our developing programme to celebrate Norwich as a world city of literature. We began the process of investigating Norwich's literary history and its heritage, not entirely certain what we might discover. We rapidly realised that we unearthed a huge, rich archive, a living archive of voices, of stories, of individuals, of groups, of people that changed the course of some of our own lives, in fact. Everyone from Harriet Martineau through to Julian of Norwich herself, through to Thomas Brown and the endless others that have passed through the city. Meir of Norwich is one of the earliest of those figures that we came across, and in some ways was one of the figures we knew least about, and perhaps still know least about. So it's a particular pleasure to be able to find a way of welcoming his voice back into the life of our city, into the corporate and social and artistic life of our city. The evening is a celebration also of the long and sometimes uncertain process of bringing this physical book back into existence. We have received help from so many different sources, from so many people, from so many organisations in Norwich, in Norfolk, in the UK, internationally, from universities, from individuals, from foundations who've devoted time, knowledge, help, passion, general support when we thought that it was never going to happen, and occasionally the odd raised eyebrow, and is it still not printed? <laughs> it is now printed. We have it tonight. From the location of that manuscript, uh, which was in Norwich Library, the Norfolk Library Information Service, carefully preserved in manuscript form, through to the sourcing and the interviewing and the matchmaking process of finding translators, through to the editorial work, the fundraising, the writing of introductions, the contemplation of the context of Meir of Norwich as a living person, as a Jewish figure from our literary past and our real past, through to the typesetting, the typography, the design, all done here in Norwich with partners. It's been an effort of many and connected uh, of giving, really, and all devoted to hearing this one singular voice come back from our city's past. Finally, as I noted, it is, of course, a moment in the journey of Meyer's voice, Meyer of Norwich, of the words he left behind, of the poetry, of the acrostic clues to his life and times, to the pain, to the hopes of his existence, his fears for his family, his community, his faith in the face of tumultuous social and political upheavals and deep religious ferment. One single voice committed to parchment, committed to vellum perhaps. We don't even know if Meir wrote his works in Norwich or while still in Norwich or whether it was after the major expulsions of 1290. We can guess, however, that there might have been many other things that he would give his attention to, making a living, surviving, taking care of his family. But he wrote, he wrote poetry, and it's hard to refuse the temptation to imagine that one day someone would read that poetry and know him and know his life and his concerns and his grief and his hope. 
as a city of literature, a city that believes collectively in the power of words, of writing and of reading, it is our mission both to listen for those voices that tell the truth and to help others hear and understand those voices. For that reason, I'm hugely proud to have been part of this particular effort and to understand our shared past and context. We're going to hear from and meet and mention a number of those people who've helped us on the journey this evening. I very much hope you enjoy the celebration. I want to start the evening, which will consist of two periods of singing uh, and celebration from the uh, London Cantorial Singers, directed and conducted by David Druce, and then we will welcome Kieran Pym, the editor of this evening's, uh, the editor of the book we're celebrating this evening. So I'd like to start by welcoming the London Cantorial Singers. The first piece that the choir are going to sing is called Oyevi. We have the Jewish, if anyone has heard of the language Yiddish, we have the famous Yiddish word Oyevi, which means. Oyevi! Everyone knows what Oyevi is. Exclamation mark. Giant exclamation mark. But we have Mayor of Norwich, who wrote a famous piyut poem called Oyevi, not Oyevi. And tonight, the choir are going to sing this piece. The translation of the piece is Yearning for Light, and the music was composed by my colleague, Cantor David Shine of London, who must have had, as all best composers do, in the middle of the night, some kind of inspiration to think of such great music. Um... It's a wonderful piece, and I hope you enjoy it.
next piece that the choir are going to sing is Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. Sorry. <laughs> is the English of the piece Oya V. Um, and that will be self-explanatory. <laughs> I hope.
Jerusalem the Golden, in Hebrew, Yushalayim Shel Zahav. The soloists will be Azan David Shayim and myself, cantor David Rome. I've been the cantor of Ilford Synagogue in London for eight years, and recently I'm now in south of the river in South London. Um, this piece was written in the 1940s by Naomi Shemer, and to give you an idea of the translation, it talks and describes Jerusalem, of course the holy city for the Jewish nation, and of course the holy city for all the religions, most of the religions around the world. And it talks about the Temple Mount within the city, the shofar, the, the instrument of the Jewish people, the ram's horn, and all other types of Jerusalem activity.
wells are filled again with water, the square with joyous crowd. On the Temple Mount, within the city, the shofar rings out loud. Within the caverns in the mountains, a thousand suns will glow. We'll take the Dead Sea road together that runs through Jericho. To introduce myself, my name's Kieran Pym, and along with Chris Gribble and Macklin Russell, I've been one of the people who's helped to coordinate this project. Until quite recently, I worked as the literary editor at the Eastern Daily Press. I've had a very fruitful working relationship with Writers Centre Norwich for a long time, and about two and a half years ago, uh, Max Russell and Chris Gribble shared with me the draft of their bid for Norwich to attain UNESCO City of Literature status. It mentioned Meir of Norwich, a name I'd heard before through my general interest in the city's Jewish history. I said to Magda, isn't it a shame Meir has never been translated and published? Magda said, well, we should make it happen. And two years on, here we are. That makes it sound quite simple. Um, as Chris alluded to earlier, we picked about the worst possible moments to start looking for arts funding. Um, <laughs> There were times when we thought this day simply wouldn't arrive. But thanks to Magda and Chris's perseverance and knowledge of how and where to apply to grant-giving bodies, and to the great generosity of our individual donors, Jeremy and Sarah Solnick, and Sonia and Brian Case, we're here at last. I can't tell you how good it feels to see you all here tonight and to be able to hold the book. So, Mayor of Norwich, this is a city that sits heavy with history, but some histories are more apparent than others. 
The medieval Jewish quarter was bounded by Castle Street and Haymarket to the east and west, by White Lion Street and Little Orford Street to the north and south. The historian Vivian Lipman describes it as, I quote, between Castle and Market, between St. Peter's and St. Stephen's churches, near to the wheat market, the sheep market and the horse market. Thus were they in the midst of the most populous part of the city and near to the centres of royal and civic authority. So while that medieval street plan remains, it's hard to stand in the Lamb Inn among the din of drinkers and imagine the song of the cantors who led the prayers there in the 13th century when a synagogue stood on the site. Any lingering sense of spirituality in the old Jewry was probably killed off years ago with the opening on that site of a large branch of Primark. <laughs> so while the Norman castle and cathedral still loom large over the city, and medieval Christianity is omnipresent in the form of old flint churches on every street, the medieval Jewish community is noticeable by its absence. But there are a few scattered relics that help us to imagine that lost world. An anti-Semitic caricature from a medieval tax roll that we reproduce in the book is one. A few pieces of pottery and a small stone column from the synagogue held at the Castle Museum. And in the Vatican archive, a medieval manuscript bearing a series of poems. In the 19th century, an Abraham Berliner discovered them and published them in Hebrew. In 1967, Vivian Lippmann's book, The Jews of Medieval Knowledge, included them as an appendix, again in Hebrew. Now, for the first time, they've been published in English. I think we have to be a little careful about describing them as lost. To do so runs a risk of diminishing Hebrew as a living language. They have been available to Hebrew readers who knew where to look since Berliner found them, and the more so since 1967. But to those of us whose Hebrew is negligible to non-existent, our translators, Elman Krasnow and Benta Ellsworth, have opened a door into medieval England that would otherwise have remained firmly locked. On behalf of my colleagues Magda and Chris, and all at East Publishing, and indeed all who read the book, I'd like to say to them thank you very much indeed. What emerges from their translation is a very particular voice, as Chris has said, speaking up from a dark era in Anglo-Jewish history. There were other medieval Hebrew poets in England, but as far as we know, the rest wrote purely liturgical verses. And what makes Meir so interesting is that he describes the social conditions of the time. We know almost nothing about him. The historic records do not mention him. He exists for us only in his own poems. And in those poems, he brings up to light a few precious, tantalising hints of the obliterated world that he inhabited. Meir lived in the late 13th century, that much we can say with some certainty. These were dark times, the years leading up to the national expulsion under Edward I, in which the 2,000 Jews remaining in England were kicked out. This was a troubled time for the city, the long wake of the Norman conquest, when its self-image was in the mix and up for grabs, an insecure populace seeking scapegoats had no qualms in turning on the Jews who followed the Normans here, financed their building projects, supposedly had Christ's blood on their hands, and some of whom grew extremely rich through money lending, 
Jews being barred from many other jobs and Christians being barred from usury, it was inevitable that some would come to fulfil this role. This was a time of pogroms, executions, local expulsions, and finally, the national expulsion. Meir and his community were thus doubly exiled, exiles within a greater diaspora story of exile. In his poem, Who is Like You?, Meir retells the Torah from Genesis to Exodus. And after describing Adam and Eve's expulsion from Eden, he breaks off to tell of his own community's recent expulsion. He writes, Forced away from where we dwelt, we go like cattle to the slaughter. A slayer stands above us all. We burn and die. Now this long poem, Who is Like You, is the one that actually tethers Meir to Norwich. Medieval Hebrew poets had a tradition of using acrostics, and here he supplies one of the longest known. Its initial letters translate as, I am Meir, son of Rabbi Eliyahu, from the city of Norgitz, which is in the land of Isles called Angleterre. May I grow up in the Torah of my creator and in fear of him. Amen, amen, Selah. Note that he says Norgitz, while most of the city's residents at the time would have probably called it Norvik or Norwick, this hints, and we can't be entirely sure, at an Anglo-Jewish dialect, akin to the blending of Hebrew and German that we know as Yiddish. However, while several of the poems are sombre, this is beautifully counterbalanced by the 16 short poems, which have a sensual, lyrical, yearning, sometimes erotic tone that reveal a very different aspect to the poet. I won't say much more, as so we have a lot to get through this evening. But finally, I'd like to return to the fact of this book's origins within the UNESCO City of Literature bid. We didn't know who would publish the book when we started out, but we've ended up in the very capable hands of East Publishing, who are based on St Giles Street and have produced a very fine edition that does our poet proud. The translators, Elman and Benter, are retired UEA academics living in the city, and they've done a wonderful job. It's a clean, modern, sometimes rather wry, rhythmic, stylish translation that I admire and enjoy, admire and enjoy more with every reading. We'll be hearing more from them next. Writers' Centre Norwich is obviously based in Norwich. <coughs> Emily Devoto, who prepared the Hebrew type, moved here recently. The printers are here. Magda Russell lives here. And I live here. It's a book wholly produced and published in this city which goes to confirm that this is truly a city of literature. The story, the story of Norwich as a city of literature, begins right here. A century before Mother Julian, before Geoffrey Chaucer was at work with the poems of Meir of Norwich. And now Meir has come to light in the 21st century. Thank you. it over to my co-translator, Benta, I'm going to say a few words about my own reactions to these works. <coughs> Meir is a devotional poet in the Jewish tradition, 
he has a range of difficulties in his verse, most of which can easily be settled by looking at the footnotes which we have compiled. But every now and again, he drops in something gloomy and obscure. Kieran has already quoted some of these, and one might look also at the phrase, put a curse on my enemy. Now, Meir never makes specific references, so it's very difficult to work out just what is upsetting him. In order to do that, we have to find a context into which we can insert these phrases. And the context, alas, is medieval anti-Semitism. Norwich, like York and Lincoln, was a rapidly anti-Semitic city. And Norwich had the dubious distinction of being the first in Europe to promulgate what later became known as the blood libel, a vicious fantasy in which Jews were supposed to murder Christian children and drain their blood for ritual purposes. Unlikely as it sounds, this was believed. And in 1144, the corpse of a boy called William was found in Thorpe Wood, east of the city. And uh, the people, of course, were prepared to think the worst. Rumors flew about. Uh, there were a number of assaults on Jews and accusations. And people lost their lives. There were various visions and dreams uh, by the populace, including one by the splendid name, splendidly named, named uh, Virgin of Malbarton. <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to know more about her. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the important thing for our purposes is that after a few years, a cleric called Thomas of Monmouth turned up in Norwich and proceeded to shape the hysteria into a cult. Thomas, uh, William was now seen as a saint and a martyr, and his shrine did very nicely out of pilgrims' donations. Meanwhile, as the years went on, uh, the community was persecuted, sometimes murdered, <coughs> until, as Kieran has already pointed out, the year 1290, when the Jews of Norwich, along with all the other Jews of England, were expelled from the realm. Meanwhile, the blood libel continued to thrive, and indeed uh, spread throughout Europe and lasted until the early 20th century. Now, when we look at this unpleasant story, it's clear that trying to find a context into which we can fit 
Mayer's work, has uncovered a lot of unpleasant and painful memories. It's my hope that they will not be tidied away and put aside as soon as the interest in the book is over. I should prefer them to be acknowledged as part of a shared past. Mayer, whatever his particular status in the community may have been, has a new status for us with this publication. And I hope that it may mark a new beginning in the history of Norwich, which has not been very good at acknowledging its Jews in the past. Before my talk, I may repeat a few things in the course of what I'll be saying. Um, in his essay, The Task of the Translator, the great German Jewish scholar Walter Benjamin writes about the continued life of works of art. The history of works of art tells us about their antecedents, about their realization in the age of the artist, and their potentially eternal afterlife in succeeding generations. Mia then explains the role that translations can play in this afterlife. The life of the originals attains in translations to its ever-renewed latest and most abundant flowering. If we, apply, if we apply Benjamin's concept of life to the Hebrew poems of Meir, we might say that they were in a coma for something like six and a half centuries. Nobody today knows what happened to these poems between their realization sometime in the 13th century and the time when they were discovered in the Vatican Library and elsewhere in the second half of the 19th century. In, 1880, in 1887, some of Meyer's poems were published and their life restored. If we, Meyer wrote his poems at a time when the Jews in England were persecuted and in 1290, expelled. In these de desperate circumstances, Meir tried to comfort his fellow Jews by retelling the Torah from creation to Exodus. He did that in his long poem, Who is Like You? In the Torah, do uh, God does not abandon his people, however desperate their situation. However, Mayer also writes poems about the popular hatred and the injustices carried out against the Jews. Mayer's mood, while mostly trusting and hopeful, occasionally becomes perplexed and uneasy as he describes God's apparent indifference to the 
suffering of his people. English and Hebrew are very different languages, uh, structurally and conceptually, and translating from one into the other is not a straightforward process. Their word order is different, and verbal forms do not correspond as the two languages express diverse concepts of time. Our approach was to make a literal word-by-word -word translation followed by a reproduction of the meaning in natural English. It was not our aim to communicate the foreignness of the original by using the English language in an unconvention unconventional way. So there are aspects of Maria's poems that we have not attempted to reproduce. As was mentioned earlier, he signed his poems by means of acrostics, in fact, all we know about Maria today is what is encoded in his work. This formal feature cannot be found in our translation. Maria wrote 16 short poems that are different in style from the rest of his works. In these poems, he addresses God as his beloved, and the language conveys intimacy, fervor, and urgency. The, the 16 short poems have suffered the greatest diminution as their formal complexity is untranslatable. With these poems, Maria hoped to conclude a covenant with God, and the Hebrew phrase is to cut a covenant. In, um, Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham or rather Abram, as his name was at this stage, and tells him to cut um, a heifer, a goat, and a ram in two, and arrange the pieces opposite each other. And later, after darkness has fallen, and Abram is lying in a deep sleep, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch passes between the pieces. This is God moving between the halved animals. In ancient times, parties solemnized a contract by walking down an aisle between pieces of slaughtered animals. This practice was the enactment of the oath, may it be so done to me if I do not keep my pledge. Meyer wrote a key to the short poems his aim was to create an aisle between half pieces for God to move through. But as he writes in his key, there would be no lambs or fattened calves. The sacrificed animals would be substituted by portions of his own name. The letters of his name would be combined two at a time and used to start and finish a line. So the same two letters would be placed at the beginning of the first word and at the end of the last word. The four letters can be combined in 16 different ways. And Meyer used each combination four times, creating 16 four-line phrases. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, naming is not arbitrary. Um, when a name is first introduced, there is an explanation 
of the origin and the meaning of that name and why it is appropriate to that character. A person's name tells his or her story by giving clues about personality and fate. He or she could not have any other name. In other words, the name and the person are linked by necessity. Familiar with this way of naming, Meir may have seen the act of dividing his own name into portions as more than the chopping up of an arbitrary name. Meir, the name means, well, it's a, a form of the verb to light up, to bring light to. So Meir is the one who brings light. In, at the end of the key, he writes, if you, my beloved, pass through the pieces, I will make a covenant with you and make it binding. Was a covenant concluded? Did God pass through Meir's pieces? And what was the pledge? Well, today, Meir's voice can be heard throwing light on the plight of the Jews in this country 800 years ago. Perhaps that was the promise, and we, the translators, are servants of that promise. Thank you so much. Um, it's a real pleasure to hear you speak this evening. I'd like to introduce now George Surtees, who will um, read some of the translucent and lovely prose and poetry that has been translated by me and say a few words also. Thank you very much. And I must thank the translators. I mean, without the translators, I couldn't be sitting, standing here reading to you, I don't understand Hebrew. I myself come from a Jewish background and three-quarters of the family disappeared during the war. Um, so in that sense, um, we hold certain things in common. Yesterday, one of the novelists, C.D. Wilde, it's very interesting um, what was just said. Um, when she was very scared, she said what her mother asked her to do was to imagine her mind splitting two pieces, yes, like that, and to walk down the middle and walk out of the scary room and find the room on the other side. I want to just say a few words about poetry, because poetry is what you're hearing. Poetry is what uh, Mayer wrote, um, and why poetry? And I'll read you just a few verses from the 16 verses, and, and I'll tell you why I chose those as well. Talk about naming. I think poetry is, in effect, a kind of naming. It is one of the differences between it and the story. Um, the Hungarian poet Agnes Nemesnagy wrote somewhere that the poet is a scientist of the emotions who names the emotions. The poem is, in effect, the name of that emotion. The poet, in that respect, is not a story. In fact, the more the poem is a story, the less it is a poem. Um, you can talk about it in many other sort of ways. I always think of it as a kind of form of physicality, as if the mouth like, were a kind of microcosm of the whole body, that the whole thing feeds itself through it. 
And the experience of poetry is a physical experience in that sense. Um, Kieran quoted that particular verse um, from Who Is Like You. I just want to come back to that. Um, he said, forced away from where we dwelt, we go like cattle to the slaughter. A slayer stands above us all, we burn and die. And what that makes me think of actually um, is it Paul Salan, uh, the famous death fugue of Paul Salan, which begin, which has this line, black milk of daybreak, we drink you at night, we drink you at midday, death is a master from Germany, etc. The same subject, the same voice, the same cry. My one last little bit about poetry, if you like. One of the major differences, as I see it, is between the functions, if you like, of poem and um, story. Imagine this, in terms of naming. A strange creature appears before you, out of the, out of the forest into the clearing. Your first reaction is, <gasps> that is poetry. <laughs> that first cry, that first, and then you give it a name. Yuck, limb, tiger, whatever you like, okay? That thing and everything that goes with it is what poetry is. To me, the story is what happens next. You've seen the creature, now what do you do? So it's about states and conditions rather than about consequences. And that's why I'd like to read um, from the 16 poems. Um, the liturgical poem is fascinating. Liturgy has its own kind of form, and its own sort of dictate. It's a public form, it's a ritual form. Um, but these poems, the 16 poems, are lyrical poems. Um, they, free, they, they, they um, respond to uh, scriptural precedent, but they're not quite so bound by it. Um, they're not quite so bound by the formalities of liturgy. And I think here, Mayer's metaphors are a kind of ease and brilliance that is founded actually on hope and delight, which is another side of life after all. And it is what makes tragedy so much more a tragedy, because we understand hope and delight. I was going to introduce you to lots of little bits of that, but I won't do that. Um, all I'll do is I'll read you some passages, and I'd like you to listen out for the metaphors that are at play, for what the metaphors evoke, um, for what kind of world they call out to. So actually just little bits and pieces, and again my thanks and congratulations to the translators. Um, so this is from part two. A fire with longing for the rains of love, here I am thirsty in my inner heart, with dewdrops of desire the folk are fed, I too perhaps will sip a lover's cup. My true love threatens, Faith shrivels in drought, withers like reeds from want of water. Oh, sprinkle it upon healing balm, that impure man may be made clean. There are dewdrops of desire. There's a lover's cup. There are reeds. These things appear, and they bring themselves in front of you. This is number three. Who will give my people limpid wine? For in my vineyard there is no such wine. The waters of my wells are like a pit, from my sea, no clear liquid can be drawn. Seek your abundance, children of my people, from those who dwell in curtained tents of love, from those who come out to draw from his springs, for I shall drink from those springs ceaselessly. Springs, wells. Number four, 
The image of my love strikes me with awe. His glorious rays imprison me in splendor, sparkling and falling like an arrow shower, stinging my eyes, causing me bitter smart. If I should flee, where would I find relief from arrows that can wound the heart of truth? Better to gaze upon visions of my love in quiet and peace, turning bitter into sweet. From number six. I just see the second part of number six because I think this goes to the heart of it. The second verse of this goes like this. I shall weave a garment of songs worth their weight in gold, a unique garment entire and incomparable. I shall store it in a white house that I shall build a palace furnished with courtyards and galleries, palaces, courtyards, galleries, garments. I want to give you a sense, you know, I can't write to read Hebrew. I cannot judge at the preciseness of what you're losing. This is what you've got. And this is what I'd like to draw your attention to. Number nine, the Lord will dig a hollow in my heart and water it from channels of my tears. He'll make my groans to sound like a sea wind. I gasp with inner pain that racks my loins. As if my ship lacks decking, he hews off my inner feelings to serve as shipboards. His mighty power sets the sea on fire, or rather lights it with a heavenly flame. It's a whole damn ship, you know? He conjures for you the ship. He makes you see the ship. He is freed in his imagery by the ship. Just a couple more, and then I'll stop. Number 10. Love longs for our affections and feasts on mine. My heart is pierced with arrows from his quiver. I am a storehouse filled with pains. They are the hosts commanded by my Lord. The wounded groan and cry out to my love, for he can both restore them and protect. Like a lion, he tears us apart, but our tears he weaves into a shield. Tears as shields, as a protection from lions. And I'll just read this last little part from the very end, number 16. Addressed to the beloved, which may remind you of the Song of Solomon, which may remind you of other addresses um, to the divine in terms of love, in terms of human love. With words I shall arouse you, my beloved, to make yourself a prince of high esteem. Accept my coronal of joyful songs and dwell within the palace of their beauty. Let glory grow within the weary heart and purify me in your rainbow light. Take pleasure in my precious meditations, these songs of exaltation and of awe. And uh, finally this evening, I'd like to welcome back the London Cantorial Singers, conducted by David Bruce.
next poem the choir will sing is Meir's Acrostic, as was just spoken about. Exalted Lord, cherub born on high, in your created heavens, you inspire awe. My Lord is mighty to uphold. It befits us to serve him, for he is a holy God.
blessed by every mouth and tongue in God who says, I am the first and the last. Mighty God, renewing heaven and earth from his holy place, you are Israel's Lord. Just a few words. First of all, I'd like to thank all who arranged this evening for inviting the choir up to Norwich. We came once last year and had a wonderful time uh, giving a concert at the Shawl here, the synagogue here. But when we heard about Kieran and what he was aiming to do, uh, we're very, very pleased, Kieran, that it all came to fruition. And we'd like to make a little presentation. I know his time is pressing, so I'd like to present you with the memento of this occasion from the choir. that we just that you just heard literally premiered tonight um, the acrostic by mayor of Norwich we've just sung it for you we put the words to a well-known tune some of you might have heard that tune before it's a medieval madrigal and we thought it would be very fitting that we chose that tune from lots and lots of others to put it to the acrostic I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. 
Just to say, that piece was arranged by this gentleman here, Alan Friedman, who, was, who is a very well-known London choir master. He was choir master of the Riley Close Synagogue for 25 years, and we thank you for your wonderful arrangement. more to the choir who hasten to make use of Greater Anglia and our great connections around the region. Um, I get the, the really pleasurable final task of the night, which is to say thank you. To say thank you to the London Cantorial Singers and to David Drews. Uh, to thank, say thank you to Elman and Benta for all of their hard work, their commitment and the hours that they put into this project. To George Surtees for being a supporter, for reading this evening and to being a fund of kind of poetic inspiration and support for this city. I'd like to thank the John S. Cohen Foundation, Brian and Sonia Case, Sarah and Jeremy Solnick, the Norwich Consolidated Charities and David Walker. None of this would be possible without those people. I'd like to thank Arts Council England, who also put money through Writer Centre Norwich into this project, Norwich City Council and Norfolk County Council, who've supported this project, and the UNESCO City of Literature Project, University of East Anglia for supplying academic help, financial help, moral support, and a huge depth of literary knowledge to the work this evening and to everything we do, and to East Publishing for just being charming and helpful and friendly. <laughs> and when the printer went bust, they found another one really quickly, so it didn't all break at the last moment. I'd finally like to thank Magdalene Russell, who, without whom, without whose prodding, none of us would have got happened. She really enjoys this part of the evenings. Um, Magda's got a deep belief in the impossible, and while that can sometimes be more difficult than you might imagine to support over a long period of time, without it, none of this would be possible. And thanks to Kieran Pym. Kieran, who saw the opportunity, who took the opportunity and saw it through right to the end. Thank you, Kieran. <laughs>